0: Good morning. Uh, I am excited that we are moving into the fall season of church life. While this is Labor Day weekend, this is like the last move of the summer lull before we're back into it, before we're back into what it looks like to be the church, that our kids are all in school and we have rhythm in our lives again. The same is true for the church. So, since it is Labor Day weekend, I thought we could take all of us who are the ones not at the beach today and we could center our own identities into what does it look like to be the church as we move forward? What does it look like to be a community centered around a shared identity in the story of and the understanding of Christ Jesus who lived, who died, who is alive today? I'm going to give you a warning or a heads up. We're gonna close out this service in a bit of a non-traditional way, certainly non-traditional for us at PAG. So I'm just telling you up front, so you're not scared at the end. Our altar response at the end, I'm gonna challenge you to pray in groups of two or three with people around you. Um, And I'm gonna challenge you to pray out loud in those two or three groups. So if you're really, really nervous and that gives you deep social anxiety, um, just show grace to one another in that process. But I think it is important that as we move forward as a church... We begin to shift our understanding and our identity from something Pastor Brian or Rachel or the team is leading from the stage to something we are all participating in together. And to own the vision of Pennington AG Church of leading people to Jesus includes our collective leading one another closer into relationship and intimacy with Jesus. You are a part of this. You are a participant in this work we are doing. Amen? All right, not as strong as usual. Okay, Acts chapter 2, we are looking at for two weeks. This will be our first week on it. Next week, um, a longtime missionary friend and partner in ministry with the church, Dale Code, is going to be preaching on the exact same verse I'm preaching on today, and we're going to be looking at it from two different angles. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. There are also Bibles underneath every other chair. You can grab them there. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, reads as this, "'All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders.' And all the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we invite you to speak to us, guide us and shape us by your word, by the example of your early church and the story they shared. May we grow in more intimacy of you and be open to receive what you have for us today. In your name, amen. I am an avid, I feel like I'm confessing this, an avid pickleball player. Uh, You may have played the sport at some point. It is the fastest growing sport in America. No joke, no lie. It is taking over everywhere. It was just recently, four weeks ago, on CBS, nationally televised a pickleball tournament. John McEnroe, tennis fame, just this last week went on a long rant of how he does not like pickleball. Sam Query, an American professional tennis player, retired in this US Open and said, In my retirement, I am going to become a professional pickleball player. It is taken over all over the place. My wife and I, Uh, Caitlin and I started playing pickleball in our first year of marriage about almost six years ago now as a way to bond and actually meet new people. We were at our gym that has since closed and kind of talking about how to get more involved and saw a bunch of older adults in their 60s and 70s playing this sport in the gym. And she was an avid badminton player growing up. I played tennis um, in high school. And so we were like, oh, that looks sort of like a cross of the two. Let's play it. So for about two years of our lives, we were the youngest people by our like 30 or 40 years. I remember being heckled by someone. They said, you're in your 20s. Play tennis. Um, And I said, I'm in my 30s. But... Most of the people were in their 60s and 70s, but it became this little community of sharing it together, and its own um, small nature of what it was created community formation and a shared identity. This is what we did. We had email chains and text chains, and we'd get together and play. The pandemic happened. Our gym closed. Most of the people we played with were older, so for a period of time, no one interacted then I started graduate school and so I didn't have the time to do it so for about three years I didn't play pickleball really much at all I started again this past summer in June and the whole community was different it used to be a bunch of older adults being kind and there were a bunch of young bangers out there young people younger than me with no sleeves hitting the ball as hard as they could tennis players from college rocking everybody else playing out on the courts and I said oh my goodness, I have to reestablish myself in this community. I went to a group that I used to play with three years ago and I didn't know anybody there. And legitimately, the culture of pickleball is it pops up all over the place and you just go and you pick up and you join in games. That's what makes it so popular. I'm like tennis where you have to like arrange to play with somebody. You just go and you jump into a game. People were avoiding eye contact with me because they didn't know if I was good or not and didn't know if I could play with them or not. I had to reestablish like, I'm okay at this. I can play with you and go through the awkwardness of literally sitting outside of a court, people trying to avoid me and insert myself into a game. If you have social anxiety at all, describing that situation probably gave you a little bit of anxiety. I usually don't, and I was anxious trying to insert myself back into it. This is June of this last year. Over the last three months or so, four months now, we've played, we've reconnected, we discovered a group in Pennington that has a Team Reach app that we've connected with again, and we had said it feels like the community again that we had lost during the pandemic, playing this weird niche sport. This is just one example of what community formation and the struggle of it has felt like over the last few years. Communities we were a part of, intimate groups that we shared identity with drifted and shifted. The church is not immune to the shifts and moves of what it means to be community over these last years. In the same way, a stupid little sport and game that we play, even more so in the church, it's apparent there is work we need to do. There are moments of vulnerability, putting ourselves out there. We need to do in order to rediscover, recover, and form back into the shared identity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Pennington AG, what does it mean that our vision statement is leading people to Jesus? How are we bonded together, not by the sports that we share or the movies that we watch, our age or the status of our families. How are we bonded across socioeconomic, across age and gender, across race and ethnicity by a shared story that Jesus Christ came, died and saved us so that we could be made new in his image and that he has a plan for not just Pennington, Mercer County, but the entire world to come and know him and be restored by his life-giving presence. How do we work towards that? And what does that look like? I thought the best way, especially as we move into our small group semester again in just two weeks, as Gavin encouraged, and I'll encourage you, the QR codes on the back of the chairs there, you can scan that and go right to join a small group. If you have been praying about this, and if by the end of the sermon, you have a desire to, I encourage you, sign up for one of them. There are four groups that we're starting with in this fall semester. If you're like, oh man, I don't even see a group that fits where I am or then talk to Gavin and I, click the link on there, and say, I'd love to help start a new group this semester, but join in and participate. I'll give you a context to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts is the second half of one story. It's not its own book, and it's not supposed to be. We've separated it for our own literary reasons, but it's one half of a story. Luke, the gospel of Luke is the first half of the story. It's the life of Jesus. It runs a parallel with Acts, the story of the church, or as I like to say, the story of Jesus continued. It's the continuation of his story. What happened to those made in his image? What happened to those transformed by his resurrection and his Holy Spirit? Where does the story move? Acts is introduced in the first two chapters, and it actually moves in about six pieces throughout the story. The first six chapters cover about a length of time of about one to three years of the early church. And it's Luke telling us this was what the church was like in its first three years of existence. Specifically, the passage we just read, and it might be very familiar to you, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is his summary of the state of the church. Like we every year at a business meeting write up a state of where the church is. This is what we're doing. This is where we're going. It's Luke's update on this is where the church is at at this point in time. This is what it looks like. This is what we do. This is who we are. And there's four things Luke focuses on, a fifth kind of framing of it. But he says they were devoted to these four activities. And as we see in verse 42, the activities are the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the sharing of meals, and the practice of prayer. And I want to frame these up for us today to simply see them as the sharing of the story of Jesus, And how we understand scripture through the lens and life of Jesus. Time spent together as a fellowship. Literally, time spent together. Eating, sharing, praying, studying, living life together. Third, the ceremony. It says the breaking of bread or the meal of communion itself, the Lord's Supper. The ceremonies that remind us and embody Christ. And then fourth, prayer or the practicing of this story we are learning. We're going to look at them each in part. But first, let's talk about being devoted to it. It says, they devoted themselves to these four acts. And I want to begin with, I think devoted or devotion itself has become actually a controversial topic because devotion, we actually see in the context of people who are fanatical, I think it's how we kind of understand it now. Someone who's really devoted is someone who maybe has lost grip on the reality. Like they're too much into that. We see them at a parade or at a protest. And we see kind of crazy rhetoric sometimes on social media. Or we see someone, it's it's impossible to have a normal conversation with them. They can't see beyond their own ideas. They're extreme in their views. And so devotion almost has been seen as this kind of negative thing. It's more of an honor to I have a wider perspective and I can hold a lot of ideas and I can move this together. I'm not advocating us becoming extremists, but how do we rediscover what it meant when the church was devoted, committed to what it is they believed and who they were by that belief? The language Luke uses is clear. The early church was known for being uncompromisingly focused on the story of Jesus. In these six chapters, or the first three years of the church, we have multiple examples of this. We have the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who is killed for his single-minded devotion to the story of Jesus. They ask him, stop telling this story. And he says, I can't, I won't, I'm not going to. You're gonna hear me share the story to the end where they took his life. We see another story of a married couple who lies about their devotion to the story of Jesus and deceives the church. Peter says, you're attempting to deceive God himself and God takes their life from them. Not to mention the myriad stories of floggings and arrests and floggings and arrests. And they release them, stop telling the story. And they said, nope, not gonna happen. And then re-arrested and flogged again. Luke tells this as to set the tone that we were uncompromisingly devoted to our shared identity in who Christ Jesus was and is and was continuing to be in our community. This is how far we went. Let's look at what they were devoted to. and We're going to look at Luke's description of four actions that they were devoted to. We're going to break them each down and then see how they apply to us today. Let's look at the background. The first thing they're devoted to is the story. Devoted to the story, or as Luke calls it, the apostles' teaching. What the apostles' teaching was, was how to understand the Old Testament through the teachings and ministries of Christ Jesus. Ministries including his resurrection. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. For the apostles' teaching in Acts, it's three things. When they, whenever they say the teaching, or as Paul will often call it in his letters, the tradition, the tradition you were given, it always means three things. Three things is the story. The story is, number one, the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say and teach? Famously, in Matthew chapter five through seven, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his parables, his teachings. They would teach these to each other. They would share these with each other. This is what Jesus said. This is what he taught. This is how he taught us to treat each other. This is how he taught us to understand the works of Moses and God setting the Israelites free. He taught us to understand and live differently. You see an example, Luke shares it later in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. He says it like this, you should remember The words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It shows they were teaching what Jesus taught. This is reminding each other. Remember when Jesus taught this? Remember when Jesus said this? Remember how he framed this? Over and over, they're teaching each other the teachings of Jesus. This is important. We can often lose this. Number two, they taught the ministry of Jesus or the story of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. So what Jesus taught and now what Jesus did, what his life meant, what his ministry was. We see this earlier than the passage we just looked at in Peter's famous sermon following Pentecost. In Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 24, he teaches the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It goes like this. People of Israel, listen. Listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and He pre-arranged, his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. We call in some ways this um, Jesus substitutionary atonement or his life, death, and resurrection. And so we teach what Jesus taught. Then we teach what Jesus did. He lived a perfect life. He took on all of our sins, died on a cross in place of us. He conquered death through the resurrection so that we, by trusting in him, could have eternal life. We teach what Jesus taught. We teach what Jesus did. And then third and final, always these components, the impact of Jesus' teaching and ministry on humanity. Not just an intellectual idea or a history lesson, but continually, how does this affect humanity? How does this affect us? What does this mean for us? We see Paul doing this. Paul, an apostle and a teacher later from this point, teaches this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what also had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. They take it, and now what does this mean for us? How do we apply this into our lives? Not just did Jesus become a resurrected new humanity, But what does it mean that he calls us to now live as resurrected new humans? How do we live this out? How are our lives different? How is this community now different? So repeatedly, they would tell this story. And this is what they devoted themselves to, Luke said, telling the story of Jesus, telling the story of how Jesus changed the Old Testament and now its impact. We know this as the Greek word euangelion, the, the, the gospel declaration or the good news as we call it. This was the story told over and over again. It's frequently referenced throughout all of the New Testament that there were teachers, that there were apostles, that there were preachers and prophets who repeatedly taught this story. And the beauty of the New Testament was there was a creative presence of those gifted with prophecy they would shake up the church. They would move us in new directions. They would move in emotion and they would connect to our hearts and our guts and challenge the movement. And then there were those in the tradition of teaching who would bring it back to center and remind this is what we know. This is what we believe. And without the creativity, it's dry and dead. Without the teaching, it's wild and lawless. And the two together brought the beauty of the church. So they taught the story. They were committed to the story. The second thing Luke says is they were committed to time together or fellowship. There's actually a Greek clarifier before the word fellowship that's not normally in English. And it's essentially the word the. It's not just fellowship. It's the fellowship, which pushes it a little bit further. He says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship. The word is koinona. It's a community. It's it's shared identity together. There's a lot of variations of how it's conjugated and used. When we say fellowship, and it's normally an old school church term, fellowship, we see the idea of community, a potluck, everybody bringing a different food they've made, spending time together. But when you add the in front of the word fellowship, it becomes a shared identity, They committed themselves to the fellowship. They committed themselves to the identity. They committed themselves to be people who say, yeah, I'm a member of Pennington AG Church. Yeah, I'm a member of PAG. The church is walking around with all the swag on them, wearing their hat, their shirt. It's a cool worship, but there's no vowels in it. They have a bumper sticker they put on the back of their car. It's a shared identity of this is who we are. And they committed themselves to the identity of being a people differentiated, by the story. We are a community brought together by this story. What is obvious though, regardless of the fact that it's an identity, you can't avoid in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, that they spent a lot of time together. That that is a base argument Luke is making. They were together a lot, he says. At least, at minimum, weekly they were together. And then he says, repeatedly throughout the week, daily they gathered together and had meals and prayed and studied scripture and encouraged one another and welcomed new members in and discipled them in the story of Jesus. Essentially, they were together a lot. They spent a lot of time with each other. I'll give you some example of what that shared identity was became. Jesus encourages it in John thirteen thirty five. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That This is your shared identity. They'll see the love I've given you shared among you in your church, in your fellowship identity, that you are people who love each other greatly. Second, we see Paul make this argument in Philippians 2, verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Paul continues to work out your arguments with each other, with grace and love and forgiveness. Confess quickly to each other. Forgive deeply one another. Don't take it to court and take it outside of the church. Wrestle together and walk as a community. And then as far as time together, Acts 2.46, as we read, they worshiped together at the temple each day. I'm gonna read that again. They worshiped together at the temple each day. Does that scriptural sentence give anybody else a little bit of anxiety every day? I'll tell you, there's church data points, there's research on how all of this works, and I will tell you, in short, that sentence In the larger body of the church today is a terrifying sentence because the one thing we all say we don't have enough of is time. And it says, they gave abundant time to each other. They shared meals together. They shared stories together. They studied the story of Jesus together. They had a distinctive look and looked different from the community around them to the point where someone could say, that's a member of the what they would call the cult of the Nazarene or the community that follows Jesus. They could point and say and know who church members were. Third, we see the ceremony, the sharing of the Lord's supper. Depending on your translation, it may just say the sharing of meals together. Um, It's more than that. Luke uses that phrase of breaking of bread or the sharing of meals. He uses it throughout Acts to mean literally eating dinner together, sharing meals together. But in this passage, the context of the story is he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about communion. And what he's saying is, not just did they share the story together, not just did they spend a lot of time together, but they practiced ceremonial works that reminded and embodied the story they were sharing. The act of communion, we eat the bread. We smell the bread and the juice. We feel the texture of it in our hands. We hear it as we're sharing it, speaking to each other, the crunch of it. It is an act meant to embody all of who we are physically into the work of the story. We take the story of Christ Jesus, as Paul said, it was passed on to me. I'm not just telling you it. We are literally going to consume it and we will embody it. When we take part in baptism, it's taking the act of a personal understanding of Christ Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. And you saying that in yourself, I'm gonna become a follower of Jesus. And it's taking it and making it embodied physically. We're dunking you in water. You are getting wet. A good friend of mine said, a good baptism service, the front row should get wet. Everybody should be involved in it. And it should involve our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and our eternal souls in one. The act of the altar itself, when we close out a service and we invite you forward to the altar space, it requires a physical move. You got to get up. I got to move. When I pray for someone, I should be touching them and speaking to them. It takes what is our mind knowledge. Yes, I believe this to be true. It takes our heart experience. I feel this and it moves it into the embodiment of who I am. It says the early church shared the story. They shared the story frequently together and they practiced ceremonial practices that embodied and owned the story. As Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians eleven, eighteen, and 21, he says, this is the longer version of a small passage we normally read during communion. This is a bit of the context. He says, first, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, guys, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. He's saying, some of you are not bought in and that's obvious, When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. He's saying you are not embodying it communally. You may be eating it alone very quickly. You are not sharing it and embodying it as a community. You are not owning this story together. You aren't sharing it with one another. The act of the ceremonies we practice as a church, and there really are three embodied practices, and that is the altar space where every Sunday each week and on Wednesdays at midweek, we have the opportunity to put on physically and pray through what we are learning intellectually. It's the work of communion, where we have the opportunity to literally and physically embody it, consume the story of Jesus. And it's baptism, where we together, communally, involve all of who we are in the act of following Jesus. They practiced these in the same way that the Jews practiced their own ceremonies for centuries and a millennia. Because, as Moses writes in Deuteronomy, practice these ceremonies so that you do not forget practice these ceremonies as a codification or a solidifying of your identity as followers of Yahweh. The festival of booths, the festival of Pentecost itself, of Passover coming together to remind themselves that God had set them free. Luke says, the early church reminded themselves not of any of those ceremonies anymore, but of the greater story and ceremony that our God put on flesh and died in our place so that he could conquer death and live among us forever. Fourth, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. This is an easy one to glance over. All right, yeah, yeah, I gotta pray more. Okay, we should be praying more. But to think of prayer as the practicing of the belief, the external product of the story, the community, and the embodiment is that I now live this out by believing and speaking and listening to the voice of God in my life and in our unity. The early church is a parallel of the life of Jesus. It's written that way, that Jesus' story parallels into Acts. And Jesus himself believed and taught and lived that he was in perfect communion with the Father. I hear from the father. I'm speaking to the father. I have relationship loving with the father. And so the first church said, okay, we now believe we didn't before, but now through Christ's resurrection and the presence of his spirit, we have perfect communion with the father. And that means I can bring my wants, needs, and desires before him. When it's been tough week, when I'm being persecuted, when my life is in danger, I can speak to him and know he hears me. When I don't know what direction to move forward and I need a reminder of my value, I can sit quietly and hear him speak over it. And that when we gather as a church, we are sharing in the experience of the living God present and living among us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, this pastor argues this to the early church. He says, or she says, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. It is evident the early church believed they could boldly lean into the presence of God and he would be there and meet them and respond. Boldly come into the presence of God. Together they practiced what they preached that because of Christ Jesus, we have unfettered, unrestricted access to the presence of God. And so we're gonna practice that. We will meet together in rooms and experience his presence. We will advocate for the suffering of those around us before God's presence. We will bring it and believe he hears and responds. And I will speak to him as one speaks to a friend. So how can we, find guidance from the early church. And I'm acutely aware we are reading a culturally contextual specific story of the early church in first century Israel in a kingdom ruled by the Romans and guided by the Israelite religion. And this is how they're responding. There's immense pressure on them. And so they do need each other and they have to gather together. They're being exiled and excluded because of their belief in the story of Jesus. And so they do need to be sharing together. There are forces different from our life today. I know that, and I'm not saying we model them and everything goes away, but I am saying there are things we can learn today that we've forgotten in the original identity of what it means to be a church, what it means to be a community centered around Christ. There's a lot to learn about the devotion we see in Acts. I will tell you, and it might be evident to many of you, that we are drifting. As a church in 21st century America, New Jersey, communally as a church body, we are drifting. You can feel it in our conversations with one another. We're not always on the same page We don't always feel like we can be vulnerable with each other. We've come off of a pandemic and multiple times we've said, we've discussed, I don't even know everybody at PAG now because we've come in and I don't know how we're communing. We didn't have small groups and we were wearing masks and it was hard to see. And there is drift. There have been multiple divisive ideas dropped into the center of the church like a bomb that have fractured us. And I think that there is power in returning back to what devotion defines and unites the church. And it begins by the story of who we are and why we are. We center our church family in the story of Christ Jesus. It's where we start. It's where we return to. It's where we encourage each other. And it may sound simplistic to say it, but I'll be vulnerable with you I am a pastor. I've done this for 13 years. I've studied it. I'm still studying it. I've been a Christian for 25 years and I grew up in the church. I, in the last year, have quantifiably read my Bible less than I did three years ago. I know it. I can feel it. I can see it in my patterns and how I track my version Bible status. I can see it. When we discuss Scripture together, there is more distrust and questioning of well, where are you getting that from why are you pulling it that way how do you understand this how do we walk this journey together the story of Jesus is guided by the Holy Spirit to become what we know as the Bible And if we don't believe that and if we can't grasp that, and there are long conversations you can have to get to that point, but it's what grounds us is that the Holy Spirit is moving and working to protect the story of Christ Jesus, who he was, who he is, who he always has been, how he was moving through the Old Testament and the product of his life and resurrection in the New Testament and that God's Holy Spirit preserved and protected that story in what we now know as the Bible. And that as we return back to that story, we see it shape us and align us. That a portion of our time should be devoted to the study, interpretation, and application of the story of Christ Jesus. I have communities all throughout my life. I have communities centered around pickleball that I play. I was able to, on vacation in Seattle on the West Coast, via the beauty of social media, uh, find groups that met at parks and go and play pickleball. And it felt just like I was back in New Jersey playing the same sport, talking about the same things. Oh, what paddle do you have? All views with this one. All of these things. I was like, oh, it's the same community that I had back here because of this sport. I have communities that are centered around my love of hiking or the different movies that I love or the fact that I'm from New Jersey and that I love pizza. I have a lot of miniature communities. We need to ask ourselves the question of which community defines who we are. In the early church, it said, I may be a lot of things. Paul says, literally, I am a lot of things. And I am born in a lot of places and have studied many things. I'm Roman. I'm a Pharisee. I'm an Israelite. I am someone who can argue logic. I am also, and most dominant, a follower of Christ Jesus, And it's a time for the church to reevaluate what defines us as who we are. And I think there's a lot of work that we can do in order to redefine ourselves and align ourselves by the story of Christ Jesus. This semester and this fall, we are moving back into small groups for our first time in a year in the way that we've understood them, being together in a room sharing our lives together. And we have decided and discerned that scripture would be at the center of each and every one of these small groups and not just, oh, here's a book on it, but literally taking a gospel story, gospel of John. And every week we meet walking together. How do I understand this? Where is this story impacting me? What does this story say? What is happening in this story? And how do we apply it to our lives? That when we meet together on Sundays for this whole fall, we are walking through scripture, not a topical study, but 10 weeks through Hebrews to remind ourselves of the story of Christ Jesus at the center of who we are. When we gather at a midweek formation, we are studying a narrative of scripture and then applying it into our community in prayer. To remind ourselves again of who Jesus is. And if we need to argue that out, to argue it out. We may have drifted on who and how we understand Jesus. That's not okay, but it's okay to acknowledge and work our way back into who he was and is and always will be in our lives and to stamp together. This is why we exist. We are not a church because we're in Pennington. We are not a church because we're in New Jersey. We are not a church because we like this semi-modern way that we do it. We are a church because we have aligned around the story of Christ Jesus, amen? And this is who we are. The second is time to find and create ways to share the story of Jesus together. Sunday gatherings are a tradition from the beginning. We see it here in Acts chapter two, that weekly they met together in the temple and they shared the story. They walked it together. It says in Acts 20, it's the first day of the week, which is Sunday. So we're doing the same thing they were doing. And I think that there's beauty and power in that, that when we gather on a Sunday, We are participating in a tradition that goes all the way back to the first few months of the movement of the church. We're doing the same thing. may have different elements to it, but we are doing the same thing. And a distinctive community devoted to one another cannot be built in optional gatherings, in and out. We don't know who we are, where, and when we are. And I'm saying this not to shame any of you or to say that Sunday morning is the only way that it works, but I've seen it in myself that on a vacation trip in May, we were hiking on a Sunday morning, and I remember thinking to myself, six years ago, I would have made sure I found myself in some church wherever I am, gathered together on a Sunday morning, In order to remind myself that I'm connecting back with the community that I identify with. And I know that there are millions of other followers of Jesus doing this at the same time on the same day, and that there is power in that shared identity. And I saw it drift in myself that I was like, oh, it's optional, and I can just watch the video later, and I can connect with it later. And I forgot part of the power of the shared identity of this is who we are, this is what we do, this is when we do it, and to know that I am not alone in this experience. When it comes to the word fellowship, it's an old school word, right? It's an old school term. The right hand to fellowship. We're fellowshipping together. We like the word community. I like the word community. It's a more modern word. The struggle and the weakness of community is that the word community assumes an individuality that is then brought together. So we're individuals brought together by the story. Fellowship in the Greek is not individualistically discerning. We're not individuals brought together by a story. We are a community made by the story. And the story is not possessed by each of us individually that we come together and share, but the story is a communal story of all of us that we get to be a part of. In the Greek, Paul uses it more like soldiers in a battlefield or workers in in an assembly line or a family together that we are working side by side. And if we're not together, it's not working. And we don't electively join as a community. We are a fellowship. Sundays aren't the only way. That's why we do small groups. It's why we do midweeks. It's why we serve together. It's why we have emails and text chains and calling and dinners and coffee and pizza and pizza and pizza. It's why that they exist. And I think that Luke would say a Sunday morning gathering is great and is important, but he'd say equally as important is that you're sharing your life with the other people around you. And that your home is open and your dinner table is open and your coffee pot is open and your cell phone is on and you're not great at ghosting people and that we come together and share life day in and day out. The third is ceremony. The physical participation in the story of Jesus together. And I think the challenge for this is so much of the church has become Portable and flexible. We move it. We change it. It's fine. We, we have to do it this way. We're going to move. And that's a total truth to it. And so much of it is figurative. Yeah, it just makes us think about it. It's a metaphor for, instead of saying that this is a ceremony by which I embody who I am, I take the story and I put it into my heart and into my soul. That when we participate in communion together, that when our small groups join together, that food is honestly a big part of it. The sharing of food, the bringing of food, the breaking it together, reminding ourselves that this is life shared, that we are humans embodying the story. When someone is baptized, we all are apart. When communion is practiced, it engages our five sentence, our senses. And that regular sacred practice that engages our body takes our mind and moves it into our flesh. It's gathering around a table and eating food. And I will say, I firmly believe, and I think the scriptures say this we are not at war currently. We are not at war with culture. We are at war with the spirit driving us apart internally and externally. I don't think that the church is under attack by culture. I don't. You could talk to me about it any other time out of this. Because I don't believe that Christ Jesus and his Holy Spirit that lives among us is scared. I don't. And I don't believe that he can or will lose. He will win and the church will triumph and the Holy Spirit will transform this world into the kingdom of God when Christ Jesus returns and we are a part of that winning battle. And it begins by a shared community that we are not afraid. And so we give generously and we love openly and we're vulnerable by choice to one another. I believe that the church, no, I I don't believe that people are mad at the church. I believe they don't care anymore that we're irrelevant. We already lost that culture war. We lost it. The church is now the minority, which means we are now in the place that the early church was in 2000 years ago. And there's great comfort in that. As we gather together and identify what does it mean to be a minority group advocating for love and justice and grace and mercy in a world that's winner take all. This is why I believe the ceremony is important because I know a whole generation following me that is saying it's just not working. Church is just not working. If you've never heard a Gen Z person say that, get out of your own house and talk to one of them. It is the repeated presence of TikTok is this doesn't work anymore. It's not helping me with my anxiety. It's not helping me in my socialization. It's not making me a kinder or more generous person. And it's not that I've stopped believing in God or that God is a loving person or that Jesus Christ existed. I just don't believe in this anymore. The ceremony is part of what grounds us and reminds us who we are and why we do it. It is what prevents us from drift. And lastly, the practice. The practice of coming to meet God together. Prayer is the practice of faith. It is practicing what we preach. It's sitting in silence in my living room for 20 minutes where the whole world would discern that I'm doing nothing. And I would say in this time, I am quieting the chaos of my mind and heart to tune back into the presence of the God that lives in me and is moving this whole world towards righteousness and justice. It is saying that when we gather together and we express our needs and collectively identify before God that this is where we are hurting, that I believe that is doing something transformative and impactful into our world. It is sharing together a practice of listening to the voice of God, a voice that is often much more patient than I am. It is preparing and responding and making space and time that what we believe is worth the space. It's praying before service. It's responding after service. It's prayer and response in small group of taking what we've studied and praying it out together It's moving in our midweeks to take all of Scripture and responding and activating it in prayer. It's waiting and believing. And I want to close by reading out the rest of this. I said Acts 2 42 through 47. We've really just done Acts 2 42. And I want to read verses 43 through 47. This is what the church did they shared the story. They spent time together around the story. They embodied the story through ceremony and they practiced the story in prayer. And then Luke says, when they did these four things, when they devoted themselves to these activities, this is what happened. This is the product. And my heart longs and yearns for this product, for this result in the church. It says, a deep sense of all Came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. To believe that the world outside of the walls of the church community would have a hunger for what we have. And that in our community, when we are lonely, when we are struggling that we would say, I need to turn back into my church community. I need to turn back into my fellowship. When we are in need with our resources and our lives that we would say, I'm turning back into my church community, seeking the fellowship of my community in Christ Jesus to feed me, to walk alongside of me, to encourage me, to love me and that it would attract all of those hurting and longing for something more. What can we do right now? I warned you, and this is how we're gonna close. I'm gonna challenge you in groups of three-ish to pray over each other. And what I want you to do is pray out loud. If it starts to get a little distracting or a little loud, just embrace that as we're a community together. We're advocating together for each other together. But to speak this out, to embody it. I'm going to encourage you to be brave. And I'm also going to encourage you that from the stage, I can see when you slip out the back door. Okay, three things we're praying for. Join together in groups of two or three. Share with those people four practices of the early church that you want to grow in. Which of those four do you want to grow in? Is it in the story to immerse yourself into the scriptures, to study Jesus, his life, the text we have about him? Is it time? I just need to make more space for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to make more space in a small group in life shared. Is it ceremony that I need to embody this back? I need to treat this with the sacredness God has called it with, or is it with the practice of I'm not practicing this? I'm not speaking this out and believing this. So share with your group. You don't have to be too vulnerable, but share with them which of these four you feel like God's putting on your heart and discerning that you want to grow in and then pray over each other out loud to take a step and for our larger Pennington AG community. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me up here and I'm going to invite you to stand with me so you can find your groups, but pray out together before you join into your groups. Lord, I pray over the community today. I pray, God, that we can find encouragement, challenge, and empowerment from the story of the church, how you worked among them, how you grew in them, how you shaped and moved them. May we be shaped and moved in that same way. Across time, you have not changed, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that we can be a community devoted to you. May we advocate for one another and may we align ourselves around the story of who you are. Pray this in Christ Jesus. Take a step of courage, gather together in twos or threes, pray over each other for the next five minutes or so, and then we're going to close out together. If you're a leader in the church, take the lead. Gather some people together.